Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning, beloved. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Our love and thanks to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. So wonderful to have Diana back again. It is indeed a beautiful sound unto the Lord. And I was reminded this week that worship in Scripture was indeed a noisy affair. It was loud. There was even shouting, if the Baptists could imagine. And that would have included all sorts of sound, including the sounds of babies crying and the sounds of small children all over the place. And how wonderful is that? And thus it is from the very inception of Scripture that we have been exhorted to train up our children, to put them under the teaching and preaching of God's precepts. Moses told God's people in Deuteronomy 11, teach them, meaning speaking of God's laws and his commands and his precepts, teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, while we aim to make all preaching and teaching accessible to all ages, we never talk down to children. We set the bar and the mark high. Children will rise to the expectations put in front of them. Beloved, today the statistics of children who grow up in the church and are nowhere to be seen darkening a church door as adults can be traced to multiple factors. And while it certainly begins in the home, as Moses told the Israelites, the culprits lie within our churches and pulpits as well. How many sequester off their children from the rest of the church? Call it children's church and feed them cotton candy while the meat is being served in the sanctuary. Kids are smart, and they pick up a lot more than sometimes we give them credit for. They are little sponges, even at a young age. When they are in church, mom and dad, they're watching you. They're watching how you worship. They're watching you open your Bible. They're watching you take notes. They're watching you give in the offering box. In fact, we often have our youngest, we have him put our tithe check in the box. And I let him see me fill out the check. And I let him see the amount. And he puts it in the box. Train them. Let them see and learn. Don't be intimidated. We must put before our children God-sized truths, massive, awe-inspiring concepts out in front of them that they can grow into, not trite sayings and surface cotton candy that they will quickly grow out of. How many parents have come to me in awe at the, the questions that their little ones ask? They say, he's only five. Where did he come up with that? I had no idea he would even be thinking about those things. Yes, they are. That's why our children are here with us through all the screams and cries. We put them before a big God with big God truths that they will consider it at age five and ten and fifteen. And they're going to have to labor to grasp as they grow into those beautiful truths. But give them shallowness. Avoid the big topics. Don't put the awe and the majesty of God and the depth of doctrine before them. And they will soon swim out of the shallows, looking for other waters. And the world, with its wisdom, is waiting with open arms. 
So we love our children. We want to encourage you all, parents, keep at it. You are sowing eternity. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we began a special journey, did we not? Indeed, the final stretch in our journey through Mark, entering into what is often called the Holy of Holies of Scripture. These are hallowed grounds as we head into the final 48 hours of our Lord's life to behold the consummation of the ages, the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord. And we begin to see the suffering servant of Mark come into focus. Our, our journey began last week with a window into darkness, didn't it? As wicked men plotted the crime of the ages. Of course, while fallen men, given demonic speed, have plotted to kill Jesus from birth, and as we saw all through the three years of his earthly ministry, many sought his death, all were thwarted at every turn. And we took great pains to grasp the central tenet and theme of this passion narrative, that no man took Jesus' life. Jesus was not swept away by the blind wrath of an uncontrolled mob. He will be bruised by the Father, and it will please God to do it. And we labored to show the sovereignty of God over the divine timetable of man's redemption on the cross. Down to the Passover, the 14th of Nisan, in clear view, all the way from the fall in Genesis. And even as wicked men plot, the chief priests and scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the entire political and religious establishment plot to snuff out the light, God's plan down to the moment, will be accomplished. The Passover lamb will be slain on this Passover, on this day, at this time, all the way from Genesis. Peter tells us in his sermon at Pentecost that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Of course, the rich irony of this, as we saw in our text last week, out of all the times that they've sought to arrest and kill Jesus, they've been stopped. They've been thwarted. And now there is one time where they don't want to. And that's exactly when they're going to have to do it. At the very moment, at the most sacred moment, the worst possible time to do such a thing, when the lambs are being slain in the temple, that is when you will slay the Passover lamb. Because complete command and control belongs to God the Father. And we took great comfort in that as believers today, did we not? Not only for the, de the deep truths and the doctrine that flow from such a knowledge. Oh, but the application in our very lives. If we are in Christ, we are immortal until God is done with us. David Jeremiah reminded us of that. Quote, a man of God in the will of God is immortal until his work is done, close quote. No one could touch Jesus until it was time. No man on earth, no force in hell can alter a divine timetable. And every saint living under the divine direction of God Almighty lives underneath that very truth. What a comfort. What peace and what boldness flow from having and grasping such a knowledge. Well, today we embark on a two-part look at, well, what our Lord calls one of the most beautiful accounts in Scripture. Something so precious, so extravagant, 
that Jesus says wherever the gospel is preached, this will be told in remembrance. Now, while this account is well known, it's familiar territory amongst seasoned saints, perhaps it's not occupied the place of importance in our heart it deserves. We will also dine upon a meal that we've seen many times before in Scripture, that of the beloved and much-recognized Markin sandwich. It's been a while since we've seen one of these literary techniques in Mark. But recall that the Markin sandwich is when, well, Mark takes a story and he sort of sandwiches it within another story. One story is the bread and the other is the meat. Well, here the bread is betrayal. It is black wickedness on display, beginning first with the scribes and the chief priests in verses 1 and 2. And you cut that loaf of devious plotting bread, and the other pieces are verses 10 and 11, Judas' plot to betray Jesus. That's your bread. Now, what's the meat inside? This wonderful, beautiful, extravagant account of Jesus' anointing at Bethany. And we remember that in the Mark and Sandwich, it is the meat which is meant to illuminate and provide understanding and pinnacle truth for that whole sandwich. Edwards describes this Mark and Sandwich like a rose between two thorns, a pearl placed in between two ugly shells, a blazing light offset by pitch blackness. Here we see the blinding contrast of extravagant faith and devotion sandwiched between treachery and deceit. So without further introduction, let us join this evening meal that's currently in progress in Bethany that will never be forgotten. Looking to our most beautiful text, we're going to read the entirety of it, Mark 14, 3 through 9, to take in the entire scene. But today we'll just be covering the first three of those verses. And while he was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster jar of perfume, a very costly, pure nard. And she broke the jar and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She did a good work to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken of in memory of her. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these are precious, extravagant verses. Holy Spirit, we are dependent on you this morning to show us your word, to illuminate it to our life, or that we might apply it. We are helpless without you, Father. We thank you for this text. Lord, you know every need that has walked in here this morning. 
and we know that through your word you will meet it. Be with us, Lord, as we reach the apex of Christian worship, the preached word of God. In Jesus' mighty name. Well, let us dive right in. We have so much to see this morning, beloved. Diving right in, beginning with verse 3. Look with me, dear ones. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. Now, pause there for a moment that we might set our scene. We also, we see in this account reflected not only in Mark, but we also see this account in Matthew 26 and in John 12. Just as a side note, Luke 7 carries a very similar sounding scene where a woman comes with an alabaster flask and she anoints Jesus. Be careful not to confuse the two. That account in Luke happened up in Galilee with a woman who was identified as a sinner, as a prostitute. This is Mary, sister to Martha and Lazarus, as in our text today. That's a different Mary. Also of note, this is not Mary Magdalene, spoken of in Luke chapter 8. One who has many demons. That's also a different Mary. There's lots of Marys. It's easy to confuse them. But now remember that Mark does not aim to give us a perfect chronology in his writing. He wants to highlight our suffering servant, our triumphal servant, especially when he's writing in a sandwich format. Mark does not keep a, a linear timeline. And here is just such a case. This event in Bethany has not happened after the plotting of the chief priests and scribes in verses 1 and 2. But in fact, has happened a few days prior to the treachery of these and of Judas. And we know this by John's account in John 12 verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So we're back to the previous Saturday night. This is what a movie or a book might call a flashback. And where do we find ourselves? In Bethany. We know Bethany well from our teaching through Mark 11. This is a small town about two miles to the east of Jerusalem, and it sits on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And we know it is the home to Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who, of course, Jesus had raised from the dead. This was Jesus, Jerusalem HQ, as he was going back and forth leading up to the Passion Week. This is where he stayed during that time. And while he likely stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they were very close. Here we find them dining at the home of Simon the leper. This is the only place in Scripture we see this man mentioned. Again, just like the different Marys, we have ten different Simons in the New Testament. Well, this is the only time we see this Simon mentioned. And of course, how is he described? As Simon the leper. We've taught numerous times on leprosy, also known as Hansen's disease, what it meant to be a leper in this day. You were an outcast, you were banished, couldn't live amongst the clean as you were unclean. This can only mean that this Simon was a leper healed by Jesus. This was often a disease that attracted the compassion of Jesus. Even if a leper desired to worship in synagogue, they couldn't. They lived a most wretched life while their bodies wasted away around them. No family, no friends, never again to know the touch of another person. 
Thus, if someone were to be healed of such a malady, one can only imagine the gratefulness that they would exude. And it's just likely such a gesture of hospitality and love and thankfulness from this Simon that we see here in our text. So let us wrap our minds around how many are here. How many are here at this dinner? And the very eclectic bunch we see. But within this room, at a minimum, we have someone that Jesus raised from the dead, someone that Jesus healed of leprosy, all 12 disciples, including Judas, Mary and Martha, dearest friends of Jesus. And you have to imagine as well, if you recall from our, our teaching from a while back, that many were flocking to Bethany to see the sight and the claim of Lazarus. They wanted to lay eyes on this. This was a big deal. And Jerusalem's only two miles away, and, and right now it's pulsating. It's hemorrhaging at Passover. Most accounts put it at over three million people. Remember in John 12, 9 through 1, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So the reality of this scene is not likely a, a cozy, intimate dinner. You have close to 20 people, just those we know of. But all sorts were probably pining to get in. They were thronging outside. Inside was probably packed, and you would have the, the honored guests reclining, stand, reclining at the table and with standing room only around the perimeter. And just so, back to our text, we see Jesus was reclining at the table. Well, this is how you ate in this period, and it lent itself to, to fellowship and to conversation. Meals were a time of extended pause. It was a time of intentional gathering. And there was protocol. There were opportunities to serve and be served. In fact, this position is why feet were washed in that day. When you would recline in this way, your feet were now exposed for all to see. And who would want to eat with dirty feet right in their face, right? All the germaphobes just cringed. So back to our text, there came a woman. There came a woman with an alabaster jar of perfume a very costly pure nard. And again, we know who this woman is by John's account. It is Mary. Mary, who had just witnessed Jesus raise her brother from the dead. Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet as he taught, as Martha rushed around and busied herself. What we have stumbled upon here is a depth of richness of extravagant worship that defies every expectation, every social norm. We are about to witness what happens in a person's life, a person's worship, a person's perspective when they behold the truth and the lordship of Jesus Christ. But look first, there came a woman. Now we hurry past that at our own peril. Understand the social norms of the day. A woman would never approach a reclined man in this manner for any other purpose than to serve food. Never. Ah. 
But the extravagant worshiper isn't looking at the crowd. He doesn't give two licks what the crowd thinks is acceptable. I'm here to worship my Lord. Extravagant worship in the Christian life puts social acceptability on the chopping block. And look with me, what does she bring? An alabaster jar of perfume, a very costly, pure nard. Now first, this jar, this flask. It would have been a, a translucent-looking white bottle. Visualize it if you can. It would, it would have a stem. It would have a long neck with a plug in the top. And the bottle itself, very valuable. This is rare, fine Egyptian marble. And what's in it? What's inside? It's a perfume. Not just any perfume, but one of costly, pure nard. This is spike nard. Extremely rare, extremely expensive. It actually comes from a Himalayan leaf and a root from northern India. Brought all the way to Israel at great expense. The quantity, John 12, 3 tells us that she had a pound of nard. Now this is a Roman pound. Today, that's equivalent to about 12 ounces. For those of you who like to cook, that's one and a half cups. One and a half cups that Mark says this perfume is pure, meaning it is undiluted, making it even more expensive, costly. How costly? Well, verse 5 of our text shows us that this could be sold for over 300 denarii. Now, remember that the denarii is a day's wage. For a laborer in that day. Now if you look at the year. You didn't get paid on Sabbath. So you can scratch 52 days of pay there for a year. There are a few other festivals you wouldn't get paid on. So scratch a few there. And 300 denarii is almost exactly a full year's wage. Now everyone here is saying stop. (laughs) A year's wage on a bottle of perfume? Why would anybody have such a thing? And of all the things to spend a year's wage on. May I share with you why a woman would have such a fine bottle. An over-the-top bottle of perfume like this. This was not something she just picked up. This was not something that she decided to go out and grab when she heard Jesus was coming to stay for the week. Not in the least. This, dear friends, would have been her most prized material possession and a woman would possess this for only two reasons one was a dowry for marriage her very hope for a husband wrapped up into the value of this precious alabaster spikenard a year's salary forget a goat and two cows as a dowry for this man's family this was a dowry for a special man Likely given by her father. So she would be able to secure her future. And second possibly was for her own burial and preparation. To bring beauty and fragrance to her own family. As she's being prepared to be buried. To give her family the remembrance of her own death. Through the fragrant smell that would linger for days and days. And would be forever remembered. How many of us can can smell something? And we're immediately transported back to a place or a time. Such a gift that is. But watch what happens in the extravagant life. 
that's been consumed with love for the Savior. Watch the reckless abandon of all else. Look. And she broke the jar and poured it over his head. Beloved, you do not break these jars. You do not snap off the neck. You take one drop from the flask. And that one drop is potent. It will cover the scent of working in the hot desert sun with no shower for a week. That's one drop of pure nard. That is the extravagant worship. That is the worship of the extravagant life. The extravagance of love and devotion breaks the jar. And it pours it all out. And what does this tell us about her worship? It tells us that her worship was planned. It tells us that it was premeditated. That she prepared for it. She didn't stumble upon this and grab it out of her purse. Her heart was prepared. The cost had been counted. And it was carried with purpose. From her house in Bethany to Simon's house in Bethany. And she said, I don't care about social norms. I'll worship my master. I don't care who's watching and disapproving. Let them write a letter to the editor. I will worship. And contained within my worship, in this flask, what is the cost there for Mary? That dowry or her own burial. This extravagant worship was a surrender of it all. Her personal plans, her hope for a husband, which, by the way, was how a woman was cared for then, I surrender. My personal comforts, my aspirations for a prosperous life that come to a married woman back then, I don't care. My ambitions that I want to accomplish that this very costly perfume could make possible, I choose glorious extravagance in my worship and in my giving. Well, I have to wonder what that conversation sounded like back at Mary's house. Back at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus before they left. Mary, Martha queries, why are you bringing the alabaster flask? That should be in our safe. I'm going to anoint Jesus. Oh, that's nice. A few dabs behind the ears, yes? Maybe a few drops symbolically on the head, perhaps even the customary drop on each foot. That's very thoughtful, Mary. No, I'm pouring it all out. Not a drop will remain. If Martha's heart had not been changed by now, she would have told Mary that she was crazy. Are you nuts? That's all you have to secure your future. And I've tasted your cooking. You will never get a husband busy at Jesus' feet. Look, you can still make a nice gesture without such extravagant sacrifice. And I wonder what Lazarus said. Having just been raised from the dead, my guess, pour it out, Mary. Pour it all out. He's the king. He's the Messiah. Mary carried out the most valuable material possession in their house that day. Hopes, dreams, futures, personal plans and aspirations all bound up in this translucent, white, Egyptian marble alabaster jar.
There will be no taking off the cork and dabbing the master. I will break the flask and pour it out. What kind of abandon is this? First over his head. Then John's account tells us that Mary anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. One drop covered a person for an entire day. One and a half cups, a Roman pound, first at the head, flowing down that beautiful head that would soon wear a crown, and down onto his beard that would soon be pulled out by Roman soldiers, and into the very fabrics of his outer and his inner clothes, being completely saturated. And then Mary falling to his feet, pouring out the remaining drops upon those feet that would soon be driven with spikes and wiping his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We know, beloved of God, there is such thing as customary worship. It was customary to put a drop or two of lesser ointment on a guest's feet. There is that which is expected of us in worship and sacrifice. It is customary to stand and mouth the words to a song or a hymn. It is customary to read the corporate scripture reading with enthusiasm when we have the right one up on the screen. But where is the extravagance? Lift your voices, dear saints. I don't care if you couldn't carry a tune if it came with handles attached. Lift your voices. Lift your voices. Men, your families should hear your voice. Open your mouth. Lift your head and sound off. Break off the stem and pour it out with abandon. And if you can't, ask your heart, why? There in that cavern, you may find a great weight that hinders you. And know this, when you worship in extravagance, when you give with extravagance, the naysayers will come. The criticism will come. When you live a life abandoned to Christ, the world will balk. Look at the response of some in our text. Look at the response of some in the room to one of the greatest acts ever committed. Verses 4 and 5. I'll read them together. Verses 4 and 5. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and given to the poor and they were scolding her. John's account gives considerable light to this criticism. Reading, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Look back, dear saints, at verse 4. Look at the question. Why has this perfume been wasted? What? Wasted, the man said. Wasted. So many books have been written. So much ink has been spilled trying to understand Judas. How could you? To see inside his heart and to root around in there to find out how a man could spend three years with Jesus. How could he stand there in a room with a person who had been raised from the dead and a leper who had been healed and say, why has this perfume been wasted? Well, the answer is right there. In this pastor's opinion, there's no more revealing statement by Judas in all of Scripture. And ironically, this is also the first quotation of Judas anywhere in Scripture. This is how you can betray with a kiss. Judas was for Judas. Judas would have been fine with some customary worship, a few drops on the feet to cover the odor of the day. That's fine. Judas knew the cost of everything, but he knew the value of nothing. What Mary knew, what Judas could never understand, That the moment that bottle was determined and purposed in her heart to be poured out upon the sacrificial lamb of God. That the value of that bottle was no longer determined by its cost or by what was inside of it. But by whom it would be poured out upon. What is the value? This is simply a bottle of the finest. Or is this a bottle of the finest to be poured out upon Christ? That bottle has gone from merely being costly to unbelievable value. And they say, why has it been wasted? When you worship, when your giving, when your life is extravagant unto Christ, it is he that gives it value. What is worship if there's no one to receive it? It's bottled on the shelf. What is our giving if there's no one to receive it? The customary church knows the cost. They know the cost of everything. 300 denarii to be exact. But the extravagant church knows the value. And they pour it out. They pour it out. If the bottle was broken in the same way, And poured on the ground. It would have been costly. But it would have no value. No value. When one ponders an extravagant life before God. One who is worshipped and lived with abandon. Our hearts are immediately turned to David. Are they not? To David. And turn with me quickly, beloved, if you will. 2 Samuel. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel, beloved. Let's hear those pages rustling. Looking to chapter 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And here we come upon an incredible scene. This is a joyous scene of incredible worship as the ark is being brought to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Looking first at verses 4 and 5. 2 Samuel 6, 4 and 5. 
So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. And meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating, making merry before the Lord with songs and all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Now move down to verse 14. Listen to this, saints. Verse 14. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Can you envision the scene? Oh, this is a grand old time. This is pure extravagance of worship. David danced with all his might. And to whom did he do it? It says he did it before the Lord, that David worshipped Coram Deo before the face of God. And the key phrase here is with all his might. The reflective mirror of scripture goes up (laughs) and into it we look. Do we worship with all our might? I'm not advocating a disorderly dance party. Of course not. That's not the key. The key is, are we worshiping with all our might? Are you lifting your voice? Are you singing out? How on earth are you singing through closed teeth and pursed lips? Do yourself a favor, saint. Stay home and watch football. David danced with all his He worshipped extravagantly from the bowels of his soul. He rang out. And what was the cost to David? Come now, what was the cost? Look at verse 16. 2 Samuel, verse 16. Then it happened as the Lord, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. There it is. And what happens? Look down to verse 20. Look down to verse 20. But when David returned to bless his household. Now what does that mean? What does that mean very quickly? That means wife, children, come here. Oh, I have been having a time in the Lord. I have been worshiping in the basking in the worship of Yahweh. I've been given the very privilege of moving the ark. Dance with me. Make merry. Let me overflow unto you the joy of his presence. There's a man who knows the value. Oh, but the Lord, but the world will scoff and balk and scold. Look at David's reception when he comes in to bless his family. Verse 20, verse 20, scalding sarcasm and rebuke. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Oh, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. What do you say to that? What does a man like David who cares nothing about the cost and everything about the surpassing value of worshiping and dancing before the Lord. What do you say to something like that? Verse 21. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father 
and above all his house. Ouch. To appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, Michael, I will celebrate before the Lord. You say the cost was my shame before the people I rule. That I've wasted my royalty upon the ground. Wonderful. I will dance. I have something of surpassing value. A heart that is clean before the Lord. That worships in freedom. You have shamed yourself as a king for your extravagant worship. For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii. And given to the poor. And they were scolding her. A year's wages. What prompts extravagant giving like that? Extravagant worship. Say, what do you mean, Pastor? She had already purposed in her heart to give extravagantly long before her actual act of worship. No, dear ones. Mary's heart of extravagant worship began long before that precious oil ever ran down Jesus' beard. And people will often ask you, what time does worship begin? <laughs> well, the real answer? It never stops. Oh, on Sunday morning. When does that worship begin? Saturday night. Saturday night. As you prepare your heart for Sunday, what is that? It's worship. As you go to bed, go to bed early to make sure that your mind is sharp for the Lord's day, it's worship. Cleansing yourself, taking a shower, picking out your Sunday best. What is that? That's worship. Now, yes, understand, our time of corporate worship is set apart. It is critical. It is commanded. It is something longingly looked forward to, to come near to God in praise and reverence and holiness. The Old Testament saints, their worship, in preparation for worship, it began long before they ever lifted their hands in song. Mary's perceiving of an extravagant love. Knowing an extravagant forgiveness gave way to extravagant worship. And out of that flows extravagant giving. And what we do, we do with all our might. Beloved, there is an unassuming offering box in the back of this sanctuary where worship takes place. That is not where you tip God. Put that away. That tip is for your waitress at Cracker Barrel. It is there you worship with all your might. And for a child, putting a quarter in there might be giving with all their might. Mary didn't approach the master asking, how much can I keep? She asked, how much can I give? And she broke the jar. She surrendered her personal plans, her security, her social acceptability, perhaps any chance for a husband, lavishly poured out. Forget the cost. I have held this, beheld this unsurpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. That's what happens when unmerited favor when undeserved mercy consumes a life, your worship becomes extravagant. Your giving extravagant. You know, Paul, he put words to the heart of Mary. 
to the heart of David in his epistle of joy to the Philippians. I want you to listen, and I want you to hear the sound of Paul breaking his alabaster jar. But whatever I gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That is the extravagant life, dear Christian. Paul counted everything, perhaps even 300 denarii. It's all loss. For I have found the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by this text today. Lord, we have seen great beauty contained within it. Lord, beauty as an alabaster jar. But Lord, it is you who makes it beautiful. Lord, it is you who gave value to that perfume. Lord, as we leave this place today, as we live a life that is a fragrant offering unto heaven, we pray that we might pour it out with abundance and extravagance. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep those who are not with us today as they're out traveling on vacations. Bring us all back together until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.